When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. You are tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve Jay. Today's guest is Edward Allen Fain, who's written two fascinating books on jazz in the White House, which is Ellington in the White House in 1969, and The Best Gig in Town, Jazz Artists at the White House, 1969 to 1974. Welcome, Edward. Well, thank you very much for the invite. Definitely. This is a fascinating topic, and it's something different that we haven't covered yet, so I'm excited to get to it. In 1968, President Nixon awarded the Medal of Freedom to Duke Ellington, the first time in U.S. history anyone in jazz had been so honored. That's a pretty amazing resume item for Nixon. How did this happen? Well, the first thing that has to be said is that Nixon was not a jazz fan. The idea from this came from the outside, from people who were familiar with him in his campaign effort to win the presidency in, in 1968, and of course he took office in 69. Well, let me put it this way. I think it's best to say that the, the spark for this was really Duke's publicity, long-term publicity man, Joe Morgan. And he talked to some of these Nixon aides, probably at the inauguration festivities. And they took the ball. Uh, that was Charles McWhorter. And they got uh, Willis Conover involved. Willis Conover was uh, had a jazz program on the uh, VOA. Mm-hmm. But he also arranged concerts. For example, at the time, he was doing the New Orleans Jazz Fest, which had just got started. Most of my work was done at the College Park Archives, at the National Archives, known as Archives 2. And I plowed through all of the, the documentation. And so I found the memos where that McWhorter had sent to famous aides of Nixon. I don't know if you remember, or your listeners remember Haldeman and Ehrlichman. Mm-hmm. Alderman was a key advisor to Nixon and first said, hey, uh, Duke's got this birthday coming up and on April 29th. Wouldn't it be great if Nixon did this? They brought the idea to Nixon and they need not have worried because as soon as they brought it up, they said, yes, yes, yes. Nixon was driven by two things. Number one, he saw immediately if he put on a big event, and of course he knew who Duke was, all right, no question about it, that this would top anything that JFK had ever done. <sighs> And, uh, you know, because he's followed, the, you know, the Camelot years there and all the splash that they got through the media, et cetera. Immediately, it was Nixon's idea to give the Medal of Freedom to Duke and not anybody else's idea because JFK 
had given the Medal of Freedom to Pablo Casals, who was from Puerto Rico. He was an American. So Duke, he was, you know, American through and through. The other reason is one that you might suspect was the he had to make amends for the just completed Southern strategy where he favored uh, in the Southern states white voters over blacks, much to the concern of African-Americans. And, uh, and it was done in code, and it was successful. Uh, he garnered all of the electoral votes. So there was this feeling that he could do something that maybe might attract the African-American crowd. A little bit of political gamesmanship and also, you know, sort of self-serving in some ways. Yeah, exactly. It was quite the honor, but this wasn't Duke's first trip to the White House by any means, was it? Uh, no. Uh, he... Uh, it was a long road for him. He tried to get into all the previous administrations, all the way from uh, Harding through FDR through Truman to Ike, and always got rejected, mm. although he did get a guest invitation by Harry Truman. But as far as performing, and that's what he wanted to do, no. But finally, LBJ was the, Lyndon Johnson was the first to open the doors wide to jazz. They had 16 events, and Duke did actually four events for LBJ. The first one was important. Uh, LBJ had this thing called the Festival of the Arts, where it was a celebration of all the arts, dance and poetry and film and pottery and everything. And Duke held the headlining event on the South Lawn. His orchestra appeared in a, a shell and played things from his most recent suites. And then he got three others, one where he was uh, joined with the North Texas Lab Band who, and uh, Stan Getz, and he more or less sat in with that band. Mm. And then the third one was a true uh, East Room type event, and that was for um, the uh, premiere of Liberia. Mm. And he, it was just a combo for, from his band. And the other one was a small event where LBJ appointed Duke to the Arts Council, and you know they had a ceremony, and he got up and he played Satin Doll. Oh, interesting. Actually, he got four other invites, but he couldn't make the events. So eight events where he and he performed at four. Do you know what was Ellington's impression and his band's impression, perhaps, of the Nixon White House and playing this event? What we learn of these things are not prior to the event, but after. Mm. So, for example, some quotes here. Uh, well, Ellington, at the close of the event, and he, they're, he's going in limo back to his hotel, mm -hmm. uh, he told his uh, publicist, Joe Morgan, this is a quote here, with how much more respect can one civilized person treat another than the president in honoring me and acknowledging me and my reason for being my greatest honor? Mm -hmm. And then you had Hank Jones, the pianist. He said, uh, this man has contributed so much. He has an endless flow of ideas and maintained his musical integrity. More than that, he created a climate of change by taking his music and make it the common denominator. If you can exchange ideas musically, then you can change ideas politically, socially, and so on. Hmm. Uh, Joe Williams, singer Joe Williams, said Duke's contribution to the music of the world will last for centers, and here we are in the White House... I think by recognizing Duke Ellington, the president also recognizes the proud heritage and the contributions of black people to America and the world. Well, in the case of Duke, the most respected jazz musician and most prolific in, for over four decades, it was as if Nixon was awarding the Medal of Freedom, not just to Duke, but really to jazz itself, and taken from that point to the African-Americans. So there was not as much concern as you might imagine of the, his recent policies. So there were 
appropriately honored. Right. You know, it's a bit confusing because at best Nixon had kind of a spotty record on the, the civil rights movement. Right. And, you know, famously Stevie Wonders, You Haven't Done Nothing, was aimed squarely at the shortcomings and implored Nixon to do the work. Any idea what would it have meant for them to refuse to play the White House if they had thought that it warranted that? Uh, the, the only one who was unhappy about the invite, he went, okay, but he despised Nixon's policies. And that was the uh, guitarist uh, Jim Hall, mm. who went to play, okay, however, he got his revenge, so to speak, later after when the All-Star concert, which was 90 minutes long, 27 Ellington tunes, Nixon wanted to put it on a record. Everybody agreed except him and Paul Desmond because he thought his solo on Chelsea Bridge was crap. It wasn't. But for the case of Jim Hall, he despised Nixon's policies, so he did not approve that music getting out to the public until 2001, after Paul Desmond passed and twisted his arms, please, please let us put this music out. And finally, in 2002, the music for this event was put out by Blue Note Records on an album called All-Star White House Tribute to Duke Ellington. Yeah, I just looked that up and listened to that the other night. It's an impressive array of jazz musicians. And uh, they were assembled to play Duke's tunes. Can you tell us who and how uh, this was assembled? When Nixon approved the event, he also approved of Willis Conover to be the producer. Conover lived in New York. As you probably know, when these artists go to the White House, none of them are paid. What the White House will generally do is maybe pay for the taxi or limousine to take them to the White House, and also in a, an event that takes him into the night for the hotel. So the concern would be, of course, is that the musicians had to pay their own way wow. to take a flight down to Washington. Mm. So many of these guys worked in the environs of New York City, many even on some of those show bands, on television show bands. Mm -hmm. There were 15 musicians overall. The Risen section had Jim Hall on guitar, Hank Jones on piano, Milt Hinton on bass, and Louis Belson on drums. The front line, two trumpets, Bill Berry and uh, Clark Terry. Uh, the two saxophones were Paul Desmond and Jerry Mulligan. Two bombonists was uh, Irby Green and J.J. Johnson. And then they had three guest pianists for the band to take a break because it was a long concert. The guest pianists were uh, Billy Taylor, Dave Brubeck, and... Earl Father Hines, two singers, uh, Joe Williams and Mary Mayo. This group, the all-star band, put on a 90-minute concert playing 27 different Ellington tunes. This represents the largest section of my book. I give a little bio on each one of these musicians I mentioned. Well, let's go with Jim Hall, because I know him from playing with Bill Evans, and you mentioned him, and uh, I find it intriguing that he was the one who wasn't happy. Right. Jim Hall, Jim Hall. Let me ask you a quick question while you're doing that. Um, did, yeah, yeah. did Ellington lead or conduct the band, or was he sitting there watching no. them with everyone else? He was, uh, like everybody else, uh, uh, listening to the, the thing. It was, it was a tribute to him. Now he was pulled up at the very end to contribute a solo, which he called Pat for the First Lady, hmm. which is something he had improvised the, the, the afternoon of his arrival at the, at the uh, uh, White House. But otherwise, he, he was listening. He dug it a lot, especially when uh, people went in and um, did things, some unusual things with his well-known songs. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's Jim Hall. It's a short one. Jazz guitarist Jim Hall's technique has been called subtle. His sound mellow and his compositions understated. His name would appear on any top-ten jazz guitar list that could possibly be assembled. 
He came to the fore in two of the fabled West Coast chamber groups of the 1950s, the Chico Hamilton Quintet and the Jimmy Jufri Three. He next appeared on The Bridge, for, that's an RCA Victor album, where his classic guitar runs perfectly matched with Sonny Rollins' fiery tenor saxophone solos. In the 1960s, Hall collaborated with trumpeter Art Farmer and alto saxophonist Paul Desmond Dory Finch before he eventually formed his own trio in 65, which became a mainstay of his performing and recording career. His influence on the current crop of jazz guitarists, Bill Frisell and Pat Metheny, for example, is said to be immense. So that's a sample of uh, a bio in the book, and if you have, have a uh, favorite song that uh, was played at the uh, concert, an Ellington tune. Well, you know what? I had an Ellington tune played for my first dance of my wedding, and that was Prelude to a Kiss. So why, why don't we go with that? Okay, Prelude to a Kiss. He was played twice. Uh, Jerry Mulligan had a, an instrumental v- version, which he arranged, which was uh, very West Coast-ish, and to the point where Duke wasn't even sure that it was his song and uh, expressed uh, concern <laughs> until he finally halfway through recognized they were playing Prelude. <laughs> but then Conover also decided to give it a conventional representation, and here he had Mario Mayo sing it and with the rhythm section backing her. Conover programmed Prelude twice. Instead, he could have chosen Solitude, which is similar in renowned mood and difficulty, but for some reason he chose not to. Guests who attended the dinner at least got to hear the U.S. Army strolling strings play solitude. Perhaps Conover, like song historian Wilson Fred Sheed, who would vote Prelude, the most beautiful song ever written, except for the one problem with the words. Or perhaps session singer Mayo was simply more comfortable with the song. She certainly navigated its tricky melodic waters with ease. More likely, Conover believed that after Mulligan's earlier median tempo impressionistic sketch, the audience deserved a customer reading of the ordinarily dreamy ballad, and she got appropriate applause. And I don't think he would have played uh, Mulligan's version at your wedding. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I certainly couldn't have danced to a uh, bop version of that. You know, it's interesting because those sections of your book, I think, would appeal to hardcore jazz fans because you get the short bios and then the interpretation of the songs, but also for people who are just kind of getting into jazz and Duke is kind of a natural entry point. I think anybody would find that a a very interesting thing. Right. And another thing I should mention here, and, and you didn't get an example of it here with the Mary Mayo one, but the crowd reaction and the reason why I know that is at the archives, College Park archives, that Nixon had all of his jazz events taped by the White House Communications Agency. So basically what I did is transcribed everything on that tape so that you get song sung, the dialogue between the president or whatever the, the musicians happen to say, and Lois Conover's uh, talk between numbers, as well as the crowd reaction. Hmm. In some cases, it was really crazy. The crowd reaction, by the way, does not appear on the Blue Note CD, right. which is sort of a shame in a way. Yep. A big, big part of that whole thing, as you know. Well, I'll also give some props here to Nixon, because he sang Happy Birthday to Ellington at the, is it the end of the, the concert? Well, no, actually, it was uh, the first thing. It was after the banquet and all the other guests who were held below in the bottom floor, I called the entertainment-only guests, all got settled into the East Room, and, and the total crowd in there, including everybody, was about, it was about 203 people. The first thing that happened was the ceremony where Nixon read the Presidential Medal of Freedom citation, 
And then Duke followed with a little speech of his own. Oh, well, he gave Duke his famous four-kiss reward, one for each cheek, as you know, which was uh, appeared in numerous newspapers around the world the next day. He then just walked over to the piano, and the Eastern crowd got a little antsy, what's going on here? And then Nixon announced, he said, well, it's Duke Ellington's uh, birthday. He's ageless, but if you all stand and sing happy birthday, we would appreciate it. And he went over to the piano and pounded out happy birthday. <laughs> and the thing that interests me about it is when they got to the dear part, everybody automatically said, dear Edward, and not dear Duke. Mm. That was a Nixon touch. I mean, nobody else. That wasn't planned. Right. That's a Nixon, like you mentioned, that the public really hadn't seen. I believe, isn't that video of him singing Happy Birthday? I think that's available on YouTube and things like that, isn't it? Well, two things to mention here. One, Nixon had, for the first time ever in White House history, had the networks, CBS and ABC, tape the, uh, the show for showing on television the next day, okay? That was the first time that that was ever done. And in addition, he had the USIA, United States Information Agency, make a 17-minute uh, documentary, which was shown to millions of people around the world, well, tens of millions. The guy, the producer, who told me he was told for hundreds of billions. <laughs> but given that it was the USIA, the rules are, just like for the Voice of America, you can't show those things in the United States, consider propaganda. For many, many years, nobody could see it. Now, but finally, about oh, five years ago, I think it was, the Nixon Foundation put it up on YouTube, which stayed for about a year. And then the year of when Frank Sinatra got, it was his 100th birthday, they decided to put up a film on his event here. Sinatra family said, cease and desist, take it oh. down. And at that point, they got scared and they took the Ellington down. Wow. Now, I understand that every once in a while, the YouTube, as you know, anything can get up there. Right. Yeah. That the, this uh, documentary every once in a while shows up there. And there are smaller clips that just show segments of it, like you say, Nixon playing the piano, Happy Birthday, and some other things can show. Like any proper jazz event, there was a post-party, which had an equally impressive roster of musicians, including Dizzy Gillespie and Willie the Lion Smith. I mean, this sounds like the hippest party in the history of all White Houses. What, what was that scene like? Right. At the post-party, uh, you know, in addition to Dizzy and Willie the Lion Smith, there was Leonard Garment, who played the clarinet, so that Benny Goodman couldn't. He was a guest there. And Billy Eckstein. Well, one of the greater things is uh, Billy Eckstein, Lou Rawls, and Joe Williams all got together and sing the blues on the microphone. Wow. And from the USI documentary, there are segments, so you can see that there was a cluster of people all around the piano listening to uh, Duke and Willie the Lion Smith and uh, George Ween, Newport uh, Jazz Festival officer, who was a guest, and Leonard Feather, he was a jazz critic, Billy Taylor, every single pianist there. Yeah. And uh, my, one of my favorite stories is that Marion McPartland was a guest also, but in a very strange way. She had a gig at Blues Alley as a jazz place in nearby Georgetown. The White House provided a limo that whisked her over to the White House so she could see part of that all-star concert, then whisked her back to Blue oh. Alley to do her second set, and then after that, back to the jam session. So she got there in time and talked to Duke and also wanted to play the piano. So Duke went over and got Willie Lionsmith to give up his spot so she could play. She played a couple tunes. She was whisked back to the 
Blues Alley and told everybody, uh, and she was a little late for her final gig and said, sorry I'm late, but tonight I'm doubling at the White House. Uh, <laughs> One of the coolest statements any musician ever got to say. Right? Definitely. Do you know if anyone from the White House or the administration stuck around for the after party? I know of, say, 22 of the 48, let's say, and they were uh, the instigators there, Willis Conover, Leonard Garment, uh, Charles McWhorter, and then Frank Shakespeare, who was the head of the USIA, Vice President Agnew, who, by the way, is a pianist and a much better one than Nixon, and he played Ellington tunes in the uh, lobby while the jam session was going on. Wow. And uh, Smithsonian head Dylan Ripley, Protocol Chief Emil Busbacher, uh, Assistant to President Daniel Moynihan, and Henry Kissinger, hmm. and his secretary, Rosemary Woods, who danced up a storm. And the last one was an interesting pick by Nixon, Ernest Pettinod, who was the maitre d' at the House of Representatives, who Nixon knew back when he was a representative, you know, in the 50s. You have some great quotes in your book that the press got from musicians and, and other people who were there. A couple of my favorites was uh, Irv Kupsonet from the Chicago Times, who called it Woodstock and Black Tie. And then, right. On the other side of that, there was a butler from the White House who said the White House sure had lots of soul tonight. Right, right. And here's a couple of my favorites. Oh, the Earl Heinlein, did I mention that? Mm-mm. Yeah, he said, I've often wondered why this country didn't give him the same recognition he received many years ago in Europe. It's so late for this honor, although I'm happy that our country has finally caught up. I'm thrilled to be on this program to honor this great man with so many outstanding musicians to help celebrate his great birthday. All he needs now is his own TV show. One of the reasons this was a swinging party is that more than half of the people there were Ellington picks. This would never have happened that way if this event had occurred, say, a year after, okay, where Nixon and company were always concerned that everybody in that audience were supporters uh, so they could thank them for their past support and encourage them for the future. But at the early on, he told Luke, hey, uh, give me a list of people you'd like to see invited. <laughs> and there was 100 names there, and about 80 of them showed up. So the point is, the reason why there's such a swinging affair is because the people who were invited down to entertain the party turned out to be the party itself. Of course. The New York Times, uh, about two years later, said... The party for Duke Ellington last year was one of the gayest White House evenings in years. Those who brought it to life, however, weren't the Nixons or other administration people, but out-of-towners who'd come to Washington, especially for the party, specifically Ellington's freewheeling friends from the world of jazz. Very cool. One other quick one. I actually put it on the back of the book. It was by the wife of uh, critic Whitney Belliott, and she said, I couldn't believe the combination of characters and the warmth and camaraderie of the evening, all because of Ellington's music. Their artists were at ease because they were at ease everywhere they went. They just happened to be at the White House. They hugged and embraced, and the evening was filled with some smiles. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Edward Allen Fain, who wrote two books on jazz at the White House. One is Ellington in the White House, 1969, which we've been talking about. And the second one was The Best Gig in Town, Jazz Artists at the White House in 1969 to 1974. So that Nixon held uh, 13 concerts, was it, uh, during that time period? That's right, 13 concerts all told, including the Duke one. Was there an overall strategy to invite all of these people, especially since on the night of the Ellington event, he turned to Leonard Garman and he said, if this is jazz, we we should have more of it at the White House. (laughs) Classic. And who were some of the ones after the, the Ellington performances? In order, right after uh, Duke, the first one was uh, Henry Mancini. Nixon had planned a tribute dinner for the moon-circling astronauts, okay? Mm-hmm. And so if that's who you invite to celebrate their achievement, of course you have to invite the composer of Moon River. <laughs> the next one is an interesting one. This one has a political touch in that he invited Al Hurt, trumpeter Al Hurt, Dixieland. The Southern strategy would be involved there. Interestingly enough, and they didn't know it at the time, it was an historic event. It was the first time that an authentic New Orleans band appeared at the White House. This turn-of-the-century music finally gets there in November 69. Following that one, Nixon had planned to have a state dinner for the French premier, Pompidou. And Pompidou, since he ostensibly did not speak English, that you have to have a musician, you couldn't have a singer. Mm. So they sent out two classical pianists. The event was scheduled for February of 70, and even in December they were sending these things out. Everybody started turning them down. What's going on here? And uh, it just kept up. Finally, only two weeks before the event, they panicked, and they called the Hollywood, and they called the right agent, and it turns out it was Peggy Lee's agent. And she said, yes, her reasoning was the if the president invites you go to the White House, you go. To her, it's a, it was a responsibility. Mm-hmm. The reason why everybody was turning down the, the event is that Pompidou had recently sold jets to Muammar Gaddafi of Libya and not to Israel. Mm-hmm. So there's always politics involved. It, always politics, right. So Peggy gets her, her event. And then um, next we have another wild one, which is the world's greatest jazz band. No, they didn't invite them. In actuality, they invited Nicole Williamson, who Nixon had learned about from the British premier, Wilson, who said, Nicole Williams is the greatest Hamlet ever. They arranged to have him come to the White House to read some Shakespeare. 
But little did he know that Nick Holways was a wild, crazy guy, and he decided, no, I'm just not going to read Shakespeare. I'll read some poetry and American plays. And since he was an amateur singer, then I'll sing. And for that, he needed a band. And since he hung out in jazz clubs, he picked the world's greatest jazz band. <laughs> and, and he didn't tell the Nixon administration he was doing this or had planned this until two weeks before the event. <laughs> they had no choice but to accept what he was going to do, even at the, the day before, he, because it was a big complicated thing he's going to sing and the band would play some of their songs and stuff he hadn't arranged for a director or lighting person and so the white house dude had to do that in a panic the next one was bobby short the reason he got his invite is next they planned a little dinner for the duke and duchess of windsor and bobby just happened to be their favorite pianist <sighs> and uh, then the next one up was somebody you would expect would have been there automatically there were two prominent jazz people that were Republicans, and that was Pearl Bailey, singer Pearl, Pearl Bailey, and fivist uh, Lionel Hampton. Well, unbeknownst to many people, Nixon was quite the accomplished musician, and, and he could play piano and accordion, violin, saxophone, clarinet. He even wrote his own piano concerto, and he played behind Pearl Bailey, didn't he? Ah, he did. Now, this was, she got two events. She did get that first one around of April of seventy. She got one in 74, and uh, just uh, quickly, in 74, that was the period of Watergate, and Nixon's administration was sinking along with everything else. And everybody, I don't care what their uh, genre was or their talent, was turning down offers from the White House. So they, they had a governor's dinner, and you always have to have entertainment, so who could they get but Pearl? <laughs> So she came in and she did her act. And after she uh, finished, Nixon would got up on stage to, you know, do his usual thank you. She asked the audience, "Wouldn't it be nice to have the president play?" And Nixon said, uh, "I don't know anything. Well, anything you play, I know. Would you please? It'll be history. We all know how you play. It doesn't matter. Would you?" Well, he agreed finally, and he sat down at the uh, piano and play uh, "Home on the Range." Pearl joined in, but after a familiar first line, she broke off. Mr. President, Mr. President, wait a minute, I want to say one thing. I want to sing a song, not ride a horse. They, they, just, couldn't, they just couldn't get together on it whatsoever. And then, then Nixon broke into doing Wild Irish Rose, and uh, that one didn't work either. <laughs> and so finally he hit the piano, big, big opening chords of uh, God Bless America. And then, of course, everybody had to stand up and, and sing. <laughs> Wow. But the important thing is, uh, Nixon as pianist was a guy who could play well off of sheet music, but uh, he, he couldn't accompany somebody. What he was better at, and this shows up in these events, he was also an actor, along with those other things you mentioned. He could always speak without notes, and that showed up well in these events. People have said, have written my book saying, this is a Nixon that I've never known, not the stern, tough guy we appear on television or strange remarks that would be thrown into the papers. Who is this guy? Right, right. Well, perhaps most famously in 74, and the photograph graces the cover of this second book, is Frank Sinatra, who played the White House, Nixon's White House. He was obviously a friend of the late President Kennedy as well. How did that come about? Was was there a weird factor at all? or? Well, the weird factor perhaps is uh, more on Sinatra's side, a little on Nixon's, in that, as we all know, he was buddy-buddy with uh, JFK, two Las Vegas swingers, etc., and he planned a number of uh, grand concerts to raise funds for his election and everything. But after uh, JFK became president, 
and he had a talk with uh, J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI. He learned of Sinatra's quote-unquote underworld connections, mm-hmm. and so uh, he cut him off abruptly, and Frank, being a Sicilian, said, well, screw you. <laughs> I'll become a Republican. Now, he never changed his views. What he changed was his national political identity. But that took time for him to become a Republican. Uh, and he worked in California for uh, Reagan, etc. Then when Nixon got elected, he started playing golf with uh, Spiro Agnew. And the White House staffers took note of that. And they were saying, ooh. And that, I found memos of this at the archives. Wouldn't that be great if we could swing him over to our side? (laughs) Their eyes were on him. Sinatra held back a little bit. He wanted to make sure that Nixon would put Agnew on the ticket. He did. At at that time, then all of a sudden, uh, he becomes a bona fide Republican. As far as Nixon is concerned, he's invited to the space shots at Cape Canaveral. Then he was uh, assigned to, for the inauguration, to, you know, arrange the the stars, the events, uh, the uh, entertainers. And he had a little flap there uh, where he wanted to put a particular comedian on, and he was refused, and so he, he walked off. And then almost later that night or next day, I'm not sure, he was at a party, and uh, he ran into a nemesis of his, a post-journalist, and had an altercation with her. When he stomped off, he took $2 out of his uh, wallet and stuffed it in her, in her drinking glass, <laughs> implying that that she would lay down for that amount of money with any man around whatsoever. Yikes. The Nixon staff, everybody, because this word of this happening got out, and uh, said, you can't bring him in here for an event. Nixon ignored everything everybody was saying and then booked Frank for a state dinner event for the prime minister of Italy. While we as a country didn't know the full ramifications of Watergate at that particular time, that is, would be uh, February of uh, 1973, that uh, Nixon certainly did. Mm. And he knew he's who's going to need all the help he can from anybody to speak up for him. For example, Hollywood stars like Bob Hope and John Wayne were always supportive of Nixon policies. And if he could bring in like Frank and all his friends, etc., to speak for him in his upcoming days of trouble, which he knew about that we didn't know that much about. So that perhaps was one reason why he stuck with him. And then the other thing to say here is here you have a case of the artist, the entertainer is picked first. Then you go out and you find the dignitary second, i.e. the premier of Italy. We're speaking with Edward Allen Fain, who's the author of Ellington in the White House, 1969, and The Best Gig in Town, Jazz Artists at the White House, 69 to 74. I'd like to um, cut to the present day a little bit more and just get your, some of your thoughts on that. Um, some of the presidents to follow would also have musicians at the White House. Willie Nelson and the Allman Brothers, who were significant supporters, um, playing benefits and such for Jimmy Carter. And Willie famously smoked a joint on the roof to the White House, which he bragged about. Right. I've often wondered about, uh, were the Secret Service up there on the roof, and and did he offer them? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe in those days, maybe they didn't have people up there with uh, rifles and everything. I doubt it if uh, Willie's (laughs) puffing away. But Carter did have jazz acts in as well, didn't he? The only time we had a real breakout, it would have been in for Carter's famous White House Jazz Festival, it's called, where, of all people, Ornette Coleman and Cecil Taylor were invited. 
along with the usual match of uh, players. And the interesting comment there on Carter, after he heard Cecil Taylor and Taylor got off the stand, he ran behind the stand and grabbed Taylor. He says, I've never heard anybody play the piano that way. Does Horowitz know about you? (laughs) (laughs) President Obama famously hosted in performance at the White House series, which celebrated Memphis soul, blues, Motowns, and jam sessions, very uniquely American music, such as jazz was, correct? Yeah, he took a different approach uh, from the most majority of presidents that, you know, sweeping through FDR all the way through Reagan, where you would invite a single artist in to play an hour, an hour and a half, or maybe a group, you know. Uh, Obama there took a different approach. Uh, so, like you say, he had a Latin night, he had a jazz night, and a blues night, and a rock night, and a folk night, and a Motown night, etc., where he would you know, bring in whatever, 10 or 12 different artists to perform. Bluegrass star Alison Krauss had a very humble response in performing at the White House, didn't she? Her remark, and I remember I read this in a paper, what she was thankful for was the recognition of her genre. Mm. Just like here, the jazz thing, the recognition of the genre at a time when it was not accepted as fully as an art form. So it doesn't appear, for example, he had much interest in jazz looking at those performances. Right. But I guess inside information, uh, and this was not publicized, Obama would invite a Green Band combo over all jazz players at at various times for whatever reason. Well, it's interesting. If uh, Nixon had his moment at the piano, uh, famously Obama had his moment singing Sweet Home Chicago, which was, was quite a moment. Oh, is it on YouTube? Oh, it is. And, and it's all the musicians who really make sure he gets up on stage. It's, it's, and he's into it, you know. It's, it's a very funny, right. sweet moment. How about the current administration? I think, you know, not to get too deep into politics there, but it doesn't seem like there's, um, you know, kind of a celebration of arts and in particular American arts there. Who might play there or right. why not? Well, I'm almost wanting to say next question. <laughs> That's a pretty perfect answer because I don't know that there is a proper answer for that. Um, Let's wind it up here, Edward. What do you think the legacy of playing the White House is, both for the artists and and perhaps for the presidents as well? Uh, Well, for the presidents, it uh, certainly adds a little sexiness, if you will, to their personas. And also, it can pick up oats. Uh, In other words, if you're uh, in New Jersey and you learn that your boy Frank was invited to the White House, (laughs) aren't you more likely to vote for the president then? Yes. The biggest impact is on the uh, artists themselves. It's something to brag about, something to use to reassure their fan base of their worth and their popularity, attract new fans, obtain media interviews and future bookings at clubs and theaters. And, And if you don't believe this, just take a look at any entertainer's resume. And you will find always, especially if been at the White House, that up top they will say, and such and such, appeared at the White House for President Obama. And of course, in obituaries, always at the top is, and such and such appeared for President Reagan four times. In this country, we don't have knighthood, but the equivalent is a White House event, hopefully with a dinner and a medal, that would substitute for knighthood. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a perfect place to leave it. Uh, It's a fascinating discussion. We could go on all day. But I'd like to thank you, Edward Allen Fain. If you're interested in his books, Ellington and the White House 1969 and The Best Gig in Town, please check them out. They are fascinating. Thank you, Edward. And thank you very much. 
If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.